This episode of Santa Cruz Local is sponsored by Get Virtual. Get Virtual pairs local businesses seeking help with college students seeking experience. Students get college credit and small local businesses get volunteer interns. Get Virtual loves Santa Cruz and our local businesses. Find out more at getvirtual.org. This episode is also sponsored by Tim Gillett. He's a small business coach. He offers free business coaching sessions for those impacted by the CZU Lightning Complex Fire. Visit bayareasmallbusinesscoach.com. I'm Stephen Baxter. And I'm Kara Myberg-Guzman. This is Santa Cruz Local. In today's episode, we'll meet the two candidates running for District 1 Santa Cruz County Supervisor. You vote in this race if you live in District 1. That covers Live Oak, Pleasure Point, Soquel, Western Capitola, and the Santa Cruz Mountains north of Soquel. But even if you don't live in District 1, decisions of the Board of Supervisors affect the entire county. There's a lot of details in here about what's going on in the county. In this race, the incumbent is John Leopold. The challenger is Manu Koenig. You may remember that we interviewed Leopold, Koenig, and a few others before the March primary. Leopold, in that race, captured about 45% of the vote. Koenig got about 31%. Because Leopold didn't get more than 50% of the vote, there's a runoff between these two in this general election. In today's episode, we'll press Leopold and Koenig on the priorities we heard from you. Since May, Santa Cruz Local's team has interviewed and surveyed more than 400 Santa Cruz County residents. In District 1, we went to a farmer's market and a food bank distribution. We also met with mostly Spanish-speaking moms in a parent group called Live Oak Cradle to Career. We also held an online survey. Well, I haven't looked at it or... I met Samantha Infield at a farmer's market. This was back in July. She lives in a rural part of District 1 in Happy Valley. She's an engineer and she's a registered voter. I asked her how COVID-19 has affected her. Well, we spent a lot more time at home. Um, and probably our biggest issue is internet access for everyone to be able to do things online for my husband and I to both keep working. Um, we run out of data each month. So I guess that's an important issue to us is, is um, getting internet access to places that are more rural in the county um, and we don't have choice to get more data or speed. At another farmer's market, I met Peter Gregg and Jane Kuhn. They live in Live Oak. Peter's an engineer, and Jane is a graduate student. They're both registered to vote. Peter told me he's a single-issue voter. He does not want a trail next to the rail. The way it's designed, he told me he'd have to make sketchy lane changes to get from his house to the ocean. Peter and Jane told me bike safety is important. Yeah, are you asking about specific yeah. roads? And re- yeah. yeah, where is it bad? Yeah. Oh, 38th. 38th. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. okay. yeah, 38th, basically, it's like uh, pe- local, I don't, I mean, I don't blame people for this, but there's far fewer stops, stoplights on 38th than there are on 41st, so people just blast down it. 
In June, I met Renulfo Fernandez and Ana Fabian Mendoza. It was at a drive-through food distribution at the Live Oak Resource Center. They were in their minivan with their two kids. Renulfo and Ana live in Live Oak. COVID-related shutdowns forced them out of work. Renulfo was a hotel janitor. Ana cleaned homes. I asked them what they wanted the local candidates to talk about. Renulfo said race and policing because of the national conversation. Anna said support for youth. One topic they agreed on. You'll hear Oscar Rios. He's our Spanish interpreter. Aquí muy alto. The rents are so high right now. Demasiado alto los, too high, too high. la renta. The rents are too high. Y queríamos saber que si había la manera de, de que haya un like control de renta. Había control of rents. That's, that's what we have always asked. Like, like, like he said, the rent is big. Yeah. To change, it's just so high. The rents are so high. See? And that's what it affects us, especially now. What we heard from District 1 residents, people wanted more options for housing. They also wanted local government to do something about the high rents. People needed food. We heard from many people who now relied on the food bank since COVID shutdowns. People also wanted better access to the internet. We heard this from rural voters as well as Live Oak families. We also heard about policing and race and a little bit about transportation issues. Lastly, we heard from many people who needed work. Let's meet the District 1 Santa Cruz County Supervisor candidates. John Leopold was first elected to office in 2008. He was re-elected in 2012 and 2016. He's 55 years old. Manu Koenig is 35 years old. He's been Executive Director of Santa Cruz Greenway. Greenway is a nonprofit group that has advocated for a trail and against rail transit on Santa Cruz County's rail corridor. Koenig is now on leave from a business development position at a company called PayStand. They're based in Scotts Valley, and they do business-to-business payments. Because many residents told us that they want to be able to keep living in Santa Cruz County, I asked Leopold and Koenig, what's your plan to create more housing options, including for those with low incomes? John Leopold. Yes, I, I am proud of the record of, have, of, of producing housing and uh, we've uh, recently approved some projects that, that are going to be coming online. I think ne- next year, Capitola Road, 57 units, that's all affordable. Um, the Portola Plaza project, which is going to be 30 units, uh, four of which will be de- designated affordable. Uh, recently, the board ended its agreement with uh, Swenson Builders on the 7th and Bromer site, which they were going to use for building a hotel. Uh, some other amenities, and some housing. Um, COVID has killed the hotel business, and so we are going to be looking at new plans there. You'll probably see a lot more housing on that site uh, than before. Also, I'm really excited that we're finally doing the environmental review on the Sustainable Santa Cruz County Plan, which envisions uh, increases in densities, um, three-story buildings, Uh, along our transit corridors. And I think that will really transform uh, uh, 
uh, the, these corridors with new mixed-use projects of uh, retail or restaurants on the on the first level and housing above, uh, and it also created a greater diversity of the housing stock uh, to allow um, uh, people to begin in through apartments, townhouses, condominiums. Also, the Sustainable Santa Cruz County Plan looks at a, a greater diversity of housing. And so uh, looking at sm uh, small or tiny homes, multiple uh, on, on uh, properties. And so uh, that combined with our already existing work around ADUs is some of the ways in which we're trying to increase the housing stock in the first district. Here's Manu Koenig. What's your plan to create more housing options, including for those with low incomes? Yeah, we, you know, a big part of why I'm running is because I've seen friends and family have to leave Santa Cruz because the cost of housing here has just gotten to be so high. And, and I, I mean, as you well know, it, uh, Santa Cruz is the fifth most expensive city in the entire world. I really, I really like the graphic that Santa Cruz Local put out about that. So I have a three-part strategy to make housing more affordable in our community. The first is just legalize tiny homes. You know, Santa Clara did this recently, Santa Clara County, and there's an ordinance there that we can copy and paste. Uh, tiny homes on wheels today are considered RVs, and we really need to consider them as actual uh, permanent housing. Uh, I have some friends for whom tiny homes are really the, the really maybe all my friends, you know, they've realized a tiny house is really the only thing they can consider uh, that'll actually get them into some form of home ownership. And if you think about it, it's really great because it, it offers incremental home ownership. So someone can buy their tiny home, but rent the land that it's placed on. And at least now, you know, they're, they're own one, a piece of their housing solution. And in the future, maybe they can uh, buy a piece of land themselves or with friends and, uh, and, and get closer to home ownership. So that's step one. Um, and of course, we should also allow tiny homes where ADUs are today uh, as an alternative. Step two is fix the planning department. The planning department really slows up all kinds of housing. And people say, oh, well, you know, that's such a, that's such a pro-developer strategy. No, 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 no. This is about democratizing growth for everyone so that anyone can help to provide housing solutions in our community. And I'll give you one example. You know, today our county says that we're streamlining the ADU process. Well, I have a friend who's an architect who's been trying to get an ADU permitted for a year and a half because that she's been held up with the septic system. So there's a lot we can do to just increase the, the culture of performance at the planning department. Of course, we're seeing this today in terms of the need to, for rebuilding after the fire. And it's a really good opportunity to create a new system to process applications for people rebuilding, and then make that the new normal for everyone else coming behind that's, that's still trying to build a housing project as well. Probably the biggest simple thing there we could do is allow private plan check. You know, we hold up people for, for months, if not years, and, and charge tens of thousands of dollars for the county to review plans that have been stamped off by an architect, electrician, plumber. You know, those, those professionals' licenses are on the line. They accept a certain amount of liability for that. And we're going to need to uh, accept that as, as good enough as many uh, counties and cities do in other parts of the country if, we're, if we have any hope of processing applications in a, in a timely manner. So that's step, two. that's step two. And step three is really we need to look at the zoning code, look at the building code, and look for ways to make more affordable by design units. 
you know, the most obvious place that we could unlock a lot more affordable housing is making it possible to build on top of parking lots. I mean, look at, think about all the space in our community today that is, is devoted to parking. And I'm not saying get rid of that parking, but if you're going to successfully build on top of it, then you need to uh, reduce the very stringent parking requirements that exist today. And in doing so, we're gonna create a lot more opportunity for housing and also a lot more funding for public transportation, protected bike lanes, all the transportation alternatives that we all crave. Many people told us that reducing high rents was a priority before COVID. What's your plan to address the rent burden after COVID, especially if state and federal tenant protections end? John Leopold. Yeah, this is a, this is a, a big worry. Uh, COVID has ripped a big hole in so many people's lives economically. Uh, we, you know, I wrote the eviction moratorium. We created a million dollar uh, fund for rent assistance, and it's not enough. Um, and after the uh, eviction uh, protections go away, um, we're waiting to see whether the legislature in February will enact another program to figure out how to support it. I think it all comes down to whether we get uh, federal aid for the state uh, to be able to support that kind of activity. So voting in November makes a big difference as to who's going to be in the, in, uh, the White House uh, in February uh, 2021. Here in Santa Cruz, um, the, our county strategy has been uh, threefold, right? We've been trying to greatly increase rent subsidies because we know that the best plan to prevent homelessness is to keep people in their housing. And so we've continued to, uh, to ramp up and we spend tens of millions of dollars on rent assistance and we'll continue to do that. Second is to use the county-owned land to build affordable housing. And so we've done some projects already, but we're going to be as I mentioned earlier, the 7th and Bromer site, there's the spots in Santa Cruz and Watsonville that we're looking at. Um, we're looking to build how, the housing that's permanently affordable. And third is to build a diversity of housing stock. Uh, so it's um, so there's greater housing stock, uh, which um, will, uh, will lead to greater uh, diversity in rents um, and availability of spaces and uh, to help um, uh, address the needs that we have here in Santa Cruz, which is we have a very limited supply uh, and that helps drive the cost up. Trying to find a way to uh, provide ongoing support is a huge challenge. And uh, there, isn't, there isn't a simple way to do it. Um, I've been fighting very hard to protect mobile home rent control because that's our largest stock of affordable housing in the first district in, in Santa Cruz County. Quick fact check. The county's budget this year calls for $1.4 million in rental assistance, a county spokesman told us. There's other forms of rental assistance from the Housing Authority and other places, but the county does not spend tens of millions of dollars on rental assistance. Here's Manu Koenig, same question, on addressing residents' rent burden. Well, one really quick way to address this, again, would be legalizing tiny homes. That's something we can do tomorrow. Um, and you know, you can build one with, a, with an RV loan. We can allow more tiny uh, homes or ADUs on people's property, right? So we can look at rather than, uh, and the city of Watsonville has started to look at this as well, where rather than just one ADU per parcel, if it's over 12,000 square feet, which is a pretty sizable lot, you could have two. Now, if you're talking about, okay, well, tiny homes can be used as ADUs and uh, you could put more than one, 
on a parcel, then that creates a lot more uh, housing opportunities that can be implemented relatively quickly. Many residents told us that they or someone they know rely on the food bank and other food distributions. What are your plans to address food insecurity after COVID? John Leopold. Yeah, well, this has been uh, something that I've worked with our human services department to really greatly expand the availability of the SNAP program, what we consider food stamps, uh, because just five years ago, we had terrible numbers, in my opinion, about the number of people who were eligible but not accessing uh, this critical program. Food is a critical uh, resource. And so our human services department uh, greatly changed the way in which they connected with people and made the SNAP application part of all their other applications and health services the same way. And we've seen a great increase in the number of people who access that program. We need to continue to expand that. Uh, we also um, started things like in Live Oak, we started uh, uh, with our Cradle to Career program, uh, Passion for Produce uh, uh, effort uh, that has done uh, food distribution through the schools. And that has proven to be uh, successful. Uh, one of the things that's also been interesting during COVID is the federal support for the Great Plates uh, Delivered Program, where uh, seniors who are homebound and don't have uh, access to other food uh, to uh, get these uh, three meals a day delivered uh, and support our local restaurants. It's it's pretty shocking. Um, I've I've worked um, with Second Harvest Food Bank and Gray Bears, and you know a lot of people uh, are are needing food right now, as you said, and um, you know those lines are are pretty breathtaking. People are hurting at fundamental level. So I think that um, you know the county should um, continue to support should support programs like Gray Bears uh, and Second Harvest Food Bank, and. Uh, you know, of course, also look for ways to help people uh, where it counts in terms of rental assistance during the pandemic. You know, I think that we, we approved $1.1 million for rental assistance, but I mean, that's a drop in the bucket. I mean, that's a thousand families for one month uh, at $1,000 in assistance. So, uh, you know, I think maybe we should apply more of our CARES Act funding to rental assistance, and that should in turn uh, make more money available for people to, for, for basic necessities like food. How can the county work with internet service providers to provide free Wi-Fi in more public places and reduce cost high-speed internet to more homes? We asked this in a written questionnaire to both candidates. Leopold pointed to some recent projects. Leopold talked about the county recently partnering with Santa Cruz internet service provider Cruzio to bring some low-cost high-speed fiber internet to eight mobile home parks in the county. They're also trying to connect neighborhoods along that route. Leopold II mentioned that Simpkins Family Swim Center in Live Oak, its library annex, and the Boys and Girls Club next door, they're expected to have free Wi-Fi. Koenig said he would prioritize road work on streets where conduit for fiber optic cable could be run. Soquel Drive, for instance, with its many businesses, could be a prime candidate. Koenig's second point was that he said county zoning could be updated to include more walkable communities and public plazas, and then those places could have more public Wi-Fi. Koenig also said, quote, we don't need a train in the rail corridor so much as conduit for high-speed internet, close quote. Many residents we talked to also called for police reform. So we asked the candidates, what does police reform mean to you? What law enforcement functions could be shifted away from the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office? 
Here's John Leopold. Yeah, well, I've spent uh, the last uh, 10 or 12 years working on criminal justice reform, and it it's, hasn't been a sexy issue until this year to talk about. Uh, but I started a group called Smart on Crime Santa Cruz County, which is was trying to envision a, a system that didn't depend on incarceration to hold people accountable uh, and to pr promote restorative justice. And we're going to be seeing a rollout of the neighborhood courts uh, this year. And that, that'll be a way, to, again, to hold people accountable that doesn't count on the jail uh, as the way and bring both perpetrators and victims together. That has proven to be a very effective model in other places. The, the sheriff's department answers far too many calls for uh, mental health issues. Um, the, the sheriff tells me that about 300 calls a month uh, are for people who are experiencing some level of mental distress. And uh, after the passage of Measure G, uh, we funded the focus intervention teams uh, that uh, with a combination of sheriff deputies with uh, mental health professionals to try to work to get people in programs rather than in jail. Um, the, it, with the budget cuts that we just made, we had to end the, the deputies' participation. That might be a good thing because there are increasingly, we, I'm, I'm aware of models like the CAHOOTS program up in Eugene, which is uh, sending out mental health professionals to go to those calls instead of sheriff deputies. And so to me, I think there's a way of expanding the mental health team that we have with FIT to look something much more like the CAHOOTS program uh, than we have right now. Here's Manu Koenig. Yeah, and I think that what we're all feeling is that a, a penny of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and we could, we could really be investing our, our law enforcement resources more wisely. And I've done a ride along with the sheriff deputies, and dealing with issues of mental health and addiction and homelessness take up you know up to like 70% of our law enforcement's time so we really need to shift you know and i don't believe we should defund or destabilize the existing law enforcement resources but i do think that we can look at transferring some small amount of their budget let's let's do a test of somewhere between 1 and 5% to more mental health services and if you look at some of the reports on mental health services, um, so for example, a, a civil grand jury report that came out in 2018, they really talked about exactly the same thing, where you know, we have um, that 70% uh, of all calls for, to 911 that involve emotionally distressed persons are nonviolent. No one's, no one's being threatened. And so in those cases, we can send a medical emergency response team and a sheriff can go along as well, a sheriff deputy, but they don't necessarily have to stay there the whole time. They can just make sure the situation is clear and then maybe they can go on to something else. So uh, we really need more of that uh, mental health uh, crisis uh, a task force. And it's the same thing again that, you know, sort of like the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, and the civil grand jury report on homelessness that came out this year called for exactly the same thing. So that's what we need to do is, is really make sure that we're reaching out to people with uh, with with better mental health resources and i think that if we could you know you might see that you move five percent of the sheriff's budget but remove 50 percent of the caseload i think that it could actually be a win-win quick note that stat about 70 percent of 911 calls that involve emotionally distressed persons are nonviolent. yes that is accurate that was in our county's civil grand jury report however dispatchers and police that we talked to for our story about that mentioned that those cases turn out to be nonviolent with no mention of how the situation was handled or who responded. 
Separately, I was not able to confirm that mental health, addiction, and homelessness take up to 70% of the sheriff's office time, but Sheriff Jim Hart has said that time is certainly significant. Next question, residents wanted to know, what's your plan to produce more bike and walk safety infrastructure? Here's John Leopold. Yeah, you know, when I did a series of community meetings when I started, uh, uh, safe routes for biking and walking were uh, a top priority. And so we've, we accomplished a bunch of those things, East Cliff Parkway, Arana Gulch, new sidewalks down from uh, Soquel High into the village. Uh, and now we're uh, working on sort of the next level of those things. Um, obviously, the, the biggest project is the trail that will be running alongside the uh, running along the uh, rail corridor, uh, which is now under construction, will be out to Live Oak by 2025. Um, and in uh, five years, I think we'll have 18 miles of that uh, uh, of that trail done. So that'll be a huge benefit. In places like Soquel, we're in the final stages. It'll be completed by the end of the year. A new path that'll run along uh, the creek uh, from the, the bridge at Lyons uh, Park all, all the way down into the village. It's one of the things that residents had identified many years ago. And uh, when the redevelopment agency uh, was eliminated, it looked like we weren't going to be able to do that. And uh, we worked very hard to find the funds and the, the, the path is under construction at this very moment. So we're, we're, we're always looking um, uh, for new projects. We have a grant in, uh, in a collaboration with the Regional Transportation Commission uh, to do five and a half miles of buffered bike lanes on SoCal Drive. You know, the SoCal Drive is scary for bicyclists, but we wanna make sure that, um, uh, that it's a lot safer in the future. Lastly, uh, I led a community process uh, looking at the Pleasure Point Commercial Corridor, uh, which is, you know, think of it as Portola Drive. And one of the things people there identified for Pleasure Point was that they, uh, they, that they wanted it to be safe for biking and walking. So that plan envisions uh, wider sidewalks, uh, protected bike lanes, changing the parking, uh, and it's part of the environmental review uh, that is the Sustainable Santa Cruz County Plan. Here's Manu Koenig on walk and bike safety projects. I really uh, subscribe to the tactical urbanism or quick build approach. So for example, San Jose built 10 miles of protected bike lanes in one year for one and a half million dollars. And they did it by saying, okay, we don't need to hardscape this all with cement. Let's just put in some rubber mats or plastic bollards or planter boxes. Let's try it out. Let's see how it works. And um, and they also timed it with existing road resurfacing and road work that had to be done. And by doing that, the same work crews could be involved, the same work crews could install the new infrastructure, and it saved a lot of money. So that's really my approach as well, is, is a quick build approach. Side note, San Jose did indeed update 10.7 miles with bike lanes in the past three years. Some of those areas got protections like bollards, but not all of them. And one of those years cost $1.5 million, according to a Mercury News story. Next question, how will you address long commute times between South and North County? John Leopold. Yeah, well, I think that there are uh, three different ways that you do that. One is that we're making improvements to the highway. We're adding the auxiliary lanes. 
We're going to have a bus on shoulder program and, and not too long that that will make the bus get through the traffic quicker. Um, and it's it's going to be one of the first in the state, if not the first in the state. Uh, second is as we look at the rail corridor, the Regional Transportation Commission has unanimously committed to putting some kind of transit on there. And we're you know in the final phases of this alternative analysis to look at what kind of transit. And if you care about reliable travel times, uh, a transit on that corridor will make a big difference. Lastly, the economic development strategy of the county is to build up our town centers so people ha can get jobs and services close to where they live so they don't have to get on the highway to go long distances. And those, those combination, uh, I think, could really improve the lives uh, of many people here. And what we've seen during COVID is there's a lot of people who realize they don't have to go into the office or they don't have to go across town to get something. And so I think that's going to shift the way in our world work. Uh, I agree. Commute times between South and North County are crazy. Uh, you know, my parents live in Coralitos and I've spent a lot of time, a lot of time stuck in traffic around Freedom Boulevard. Uh, and we, we definitely have to do something about it. Um, I think that we should start by looking at how can we run our existing metro system more effectively. You know, I think a bus on shoulder program as soon as possible makes a lot of sense. Uh, programming that to be, you know, our metro to be uh, more frequent in terms of service, uh, more accessible in terms of color-coded lines, so it's easy to 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 know the routes. Um, and you know, we have to look at things we can do in a short period of time. And you know, as you know, uh, and I'm I think this question is getting at right the the idea of a train is just it's just not feasible because I mean you're talking about 2035 or beyond with a train, you're talking about, um, you know, passing another sales tax measure, which I, you know, given the failure of measure H for affordable housing, the failure of measure R for Cabrillo College, both bonds, which would have served a pretty good, you know, let's say 20% of our, our county population, a train really, according to transportation experts, would only serve 2% or less of our population, around 3,000 riders a day. So there's just not enough people that you're actually going to see the passage of a sales tax uh, to support it. And you know, I'm I'd be happy to try out buses on uh, on a, a paved surface on the rail corridor to see if that works out. I I don't think that we should um, you know make necessarily a, a dual facility where you're trying to basically still do the rail and trail plan but with buses. Let's make a a, a paved surface that's easy to try, uh, you know, a bus or bikes or reprogram as necessary. There are a lot of variables about what rail choices that the Regional Transportation Commission would make. Leopold sits on that commission and Koenig would sit on it if he wins Leopold's supervisor's seat. Last question, how can the county create more jobs and better paying jobs? We asked this question in the primary. Leopold said that because more than 80% of businesses in Santa Cruz County have nine employees or less, improving the Economic Development Office would help more small businesses. He also mentioned helping Kaiser Permanente open more facilities in the county, and he talked about legalizing cannabis and how it's created more jobs. So Manu Koenig, on the other hand, talked about helping tech startups from places like Santa Cruz New Tech Meetup, and also he said he would try to allow more mixed use development and office space in Live Oak and Soquel through rezoning.
Okay, summarizing. One big difference is the candidate's approach to new housing. Leopold pointed to his record where there have been a few multifamily housing developments approved in District 1. There was one with 31 units on Portola Drive near 38th Avenue recently, and another with about 57 units on Capitola Road. The state's goal for Santa Cruz County in the next few years is to issue permits for 514 homes for low and very low income residents. The county overall so far has issued only 85 permits as of July. So that's about 16% toward the goal. Uh, Leopold wrote a county law also related to housing. It was adopted this year and it said that if mobile home park owners wanna close parks, that owner has to find new housing for all the people that are displaced. Koenig's strategy on housing was he wanted to see the county allow more tiny homes. Similar new laws related to tiny homes have been adopted in Santa Clara and Los Angeles counties. Second, he was talking about increasing the culture of performance at the planning department, and he's talking about increasing the speed of permits. Third, he was talking about private plan check, which is having architects, electricians, plumbers, and the like sign off on projects rather than county staff. Uh, Some other counties allow this. And then last, he talked about trying to reduce permit fees to incentivize developers to create more one or two bedroom units. And those units are generally more affordable. If you want more summaries of the policy differences in these two candidates, go to santacruzlocal.org elections. You'll find answers to a separate written questionnaire for these candidates. It tackles issues like homelessness, among other things. And big announcement, we're going to have live online candidate forums coming up. We'll have one for each city council race in the county and this county board of supervisors race. The county supervisors candidate forum is 6 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, October 8th. It's on Zoom, and you can register at santacruzlocal.org events. Stay up to date on local elections. Sign up for Santa Cruz Local's free newsletter. Sign up is at santacruzlocal.org. Links are in our show notes. Santa Cruz Local's journalism is free for everyone, but our work costs money to produce. This episode, for example, included reporting that spanned months. Our work is supported by Santa Cruz Local members. Our members make recurring monthly or annual contributions starting at $9 a month or $99 a year. Thank you to our more than 640 Santa Cruz Local members. You make our work possible. And thank you especially to our Guardian Level members, Deborah Seche, Chris Nicholson, Patrick Riley, Elizabeth and David Doolin, and the Kelly family. Thanks to Trimpot for the music. I'm Stephen Baxter. Thanks for listening to Santa Cruz Local. This episode was sponsored by Santa Cruz Works, your connection to our area's thriving tech and business community. With over 5,000 members, Santa Cruz Works gives you access, the largest monthly tech events, solutions for your startups and businesses, connections to the hottest jobs, and the latest news about local companies, 
their stories, and best practices. Subscribe free to the Santa Cruz Works weekly newsletter today, santacruzworks.org.